Jesus, I pray tonight that uh, you would freshly teach us. Paul is doing something in this letter that sounds weird to us. He keeps talking about you. It's a short letter. We would think that once he mentions you, he moves on to other topics, but he keeps coming back to you. And so we keep talking about you and we keep hearing about you and there is likely in my friend's hearts the same suspicion that's in my heart. Aren't we ready to move on to the next topic? Haven't we been over this before? And therein lies our problem, Lord, is that your glory fills the earth, that we are immersed, submerged in you. That is the hope of glory for us, that we are in you, and yet we still think of you as this little thing that you know, we understand and we move on, and so we pray, we need your help, I need your help. <clears throat> That's too tall of a task for me to speak to. It's too tall of a task for my friends to understand on their own. So we pray that you would help. We ask this in your name, amen. So we're living in an age right now where you've seen the same headlines I do, and you're probably beginning to get in on the joke or the strategy behind the headlines you see, the ads you see, the commercials you see that pop up on the margins of what you're trying to find on the internet or on Facebook or wherever else, and these things keep popping up. And it's clickbait, right? You've seen the ads. They go like this. This food you're eating every day is killing you. Should I click on that or is ignorance bliss? Ignorance is indeed bliss, so I never click on that one. Do these two things every morning and you'll lose your belly fat. Saw that one recently. Ladies, you're going to love this. Apparently, there are three things none of you can resist. Three things we can say that none of you can resist. And I would imagine some of the men in this room are quite resistible. Um, (laughs) Myself included. My wife will tell you. It took me a long time. The secret to killing it at your next job interview That's online, that's the crazy stuff. But then uh, go in your mind's eye right now and walk through Tate, walk through MLC, Sili, whatever. Go through these places and remember the posters you've seen, same clickbaity kind of headlines are there. Come to this job panel or this this mock interview series and you'll learn everything you need to know about the interview process or about how to get the internship you have to have to keep moving forward. It's all over the church too. Most of the books I've bought, I bought for clickbait kind of little blurbs on the back. This is a very popular book. I'm not condemning everything in it. I'm just saying, look, this is one of the best sellers. Over 600,000 copies sold, and this thing was like probably in 1990 when this book was bought. Um, and these are the kind of things that are, the publisher put on the back cover to try to get you to buy it. The contents of this book have had a life-changing effect on me and my wife. As I read this book, I kept fighting back the gnawing feeling that the whole trajectory of my life would have been different and better had I read this 20 years ago. In this insightful and extremely helpful book, you'll learn about a simple concept that can change your life, and it's waiting for you when you open this book that I highly recommend. This book is going to provide a doorway of understanding and freedom to those of you who have allowed yourselves to be buried in the inability to say no. Henry and John, thank you for helping us toward freedom. The promises, the titles are messianic in their scope, right? This 
article, this secret, this formula, this book, this strategy, this spiritual method will change your life if you read it, if you click on this, if you buy this, if you do this. This thing will unlock the mystery for you. We have Christianized it, spiritualized it, and so, uh, you know, a lot of retreats, you're said, come on this retreat, go to this beach project, go to this mission trip, go to this fall conference, it'll change your life. You're gonna hear things you've never heard before, it's gonna rock your world, it's just gonna blow your mind. And you get there, and you do all these things, you click on the article, and you're like immediately let down. You buy this book, and you're like, uh, you know, two months later, I'm back to the way I was before, before I read the book. And all of these things, what they're trying to do is they're trying to package divinity inside of an article, a technique, or whatever else. They're trying to package it and sell it or give it so that you'll take it. And they're trying to package immortality and eternity and omnipotence and all these things. And here's how it works. This is how the delusion works, this clickbait advertising thing that there is a secret out there and if you just could get access to it, you would be kind of on the inside track. You'd be ready to roll. You'd finally grow. You'd finally beat porn. You'd finally be able to eat healthier or have a more productive, diligent lifestyle. You'd stop being so lazy and procrastinating if you just got this secret. You'd finally be the Christian you've always wanted to be or the friend or whatever else. This is how that pathology works. If you x-rayed it, First, uh, there is secret knowledge out there that you don't have. It's kind of the first premise. There is secret knowledge out there. There are secrets that you just don't know about. That's your problem. You haven't heard it yet. So you need to get this next thing to get it. The second thing, if I knew the secret, I would be able to progress and change and mature and grow. If I knew the secret that is out there, finally I'd be able to move forward and really move, and really grow. But here's the stuff that remains behind the curtain. That's the part we think, it's the part we see, it's appealing to that part of us, but here's what's behind the curtain. And here is why Paul, in, uh, in the passage Hunter just read, why Paul says, I'm writing this so that none of you may be deceived by plausible sounding arguments. What I just told you is very plausible. That's believable. You're like, okay, I don't know everything in the universe. Maybe there is something out there that if I knew, it'd be super helpful. It'd be life transforming, change the trajectory of my whole life. It's pretty plausible sounding, which means if it's a plausible sounding argument Paul's warning us about, it means there's stuff going on behind the curtains too. And here's what's going on behind the curtains, I think. If you heard that secret, if you tried that strategy if I did the three things I gotta do every morning to, to lose the belly fat or to look better or to be beach ready, the power needed to do those things is still all inside of me, right? I can read an article and it can even be a helpful article. I can read a book like this. I can start a new series of practices or spiritual disciplines in my life, but at the end of the day, there are no batteries in these things, right? It's the old batteries not included. Did you have the curse of your mom and dad ever wrapping something up on Christmas morning? It was the present you've always been wanting. You asked for it from Santa Claus. You finally get it. And they forgot to put batteries in the thing. And you're like, you're like trying to play with it and make all the noises and everything, pushing the buttons and nothing's happening. That's the delusion, the deception of all of these clickbait kind of things, whether they're spiritual and churchy 
you'll finally grow, you'll finally mature, become a godly man, a godly woman, or whether they're in kind of the, the outside world. Batteries are not included. The power is still left all with you. Your willpower, your discipline, your consistency, your follow through, all of those things. It's all on you. <clears throat> and that's what you're left with, even if you know the secret, if the secret is even really out there. And that is why these things never really work, right? Isn't that right? I've tried these things and you have too. That's why they're successful. That's why they're still putting out there. We try these things either through New Year's resolutions or through something a friend tells us about and we're like, man, I gotta try this too and see if it works for me. Maybe this is the last diet I'll ever have to do or the last exercise regimen I'm ever gonna have to try because it's gonna be the one. And we, we do this stuff and it never works. It never seems to really stick. How many read through the Bible in a year programs have you been through? How many different variations or angles or repackaging of that practice have you been through? Or journaling methods maybe? Or meditation methods to try to get kind of what we're talking about here inside of you and digest it a little bit better? Or whatever it is. How many times have you tried that stuff and you just hate yourself all the more a few days, a few weeks, a few months, a few years later because you're like, and there's another thing that I've screwed up. So apparently this wasn't the secret. Maybe I'll keep looking. Maybe I'll try that next thing. And we get tied up in these little cul-de-sacs where we're really just left with ourselves and our own exhaustion. And side point, I've said this before, of all people, I'm not opposed to finding wiser ways of reading our Bibles more regularly. Of course, it's important that the word of God dwell in us richly and to do that, you gotta know it. I'm not pushing back against praying more often or spiritual disciplines or any of those things. I'm just saying, how are you looking at these things? What are you asking them to do for you? Uh, Are you asking them to be vehicles to carry you nearer to Jesus? Or are you looking at these things just to do them more? This is, the, this is the pathology of the problem we've been talking about. And it's not new, by the way. This is not like advertisers have figured out how to grab you. This is ancient. And the way we know that is you can dig up stuff in the Middle East or in Africa and you can find this stuff pressed in cuneiform or hieroglyphics or whatever on clay pots. And you hear it in this letter to the Christians in Colossae. These are Christians, they're new believers. And within a few years of kind of coming alive and believing in Jesus, putting their faith in him, they are already prone to believe plausible sounding arguments that are leading them away from Jesus. That are, that are suggesting, whispering to them, Jesus is awesome, he's great. Yes, amen to everything about Jesus, but there's some other secrets you need to know if you're really gonna progress in him, if you're gonna become more like him. You've gotta have this other stuff too. So it's an ancient whisper Uh, And Paul is addressing it because the Colossians heard all of these things too. Before we push on, let's let's step back and just ask the question, um, what does this dynamic reveal to us, kind of about our own humanity, the things we're prone to believe? The first is this, I think. If I just made up a list, I don't know if this is like the list, the list I thought of. Um, We rightly sense that we don't have within us the power to change. That's why we're all looking to stuff outside of us, right? And you're Christian, not Christian, whatever else. Like, you believe that. 
I guarantee you believe that. You know you believe this. We all have a deep down sense of I don't have what it takes to do what I think I need to do or to grow in the ways I think I need to grow and mature. Whether you're talking about as a Christian or a human or professional or whatever else. And so we're looking for stuff outside of us because we know I don't have inside of me what's required to do these things. Um, Number two, this stuff suggests that we find change, growth, maturation very elusive, right? It's hard. It's confusing to us. It's not as simple as it might seem. Just do these things and you'll grow. We find it very elusive. How do I know? Because we keep trying different things. They don't work and we try other things. We get discouraged. Uh, Number three, we think change is going to be easier than it actually is, which is perhaps why we get so discouraged and so defeated when these things don't work. And we're like, man, am I the only one that's thinking this is like really hard? Am I the only one that feels like it's one step forward, three steps back? I thought this would be easier. Uh, Fourth, we want shortcuts. We want shortcuts. We think there are hacks or tricks or secrets out there that can save us a few steps and um, kind of put us in the fast lane of maturation, that we won't have to go through the things other people have to go through to grow and become wise or godly people. And maybe, maybe um, last, we see change and growth and maturation as a transaction. Uh, like, kind of like going to the ATM, I'm gonna put these things in, I'm gonna invest this, I'm gonna do this for you, and then you spit this stuff back out for me and we're both gonna be, you know, kind of content on our own after that. We see it as a transaction, we see change as a transaction, not the fruit of a relationship. Think about your life, think about why you are the person you are today. It is owing to people, right? Coaches and mentors and moms and dads and brothers and sisters and friends, teachers, pastors, counselors, therapists. The reason you are the way you are today is because of people, not transactions you made throughout your life. You do this for me and I do this for me. The things that change you are things that drew you closer to people and they rubbed off on you, they challenged you, somehow they knocked a a rough edge off. Change is personal. It's the fruit of a relationship, not transactions. And this is another thing. We think deep down it's just gonna be a transaction. If I do this formula, then God's gonna do this in my life. He's gonna make me better or stronger in this area. And so, big point to wrap all of that up. Maturity is mysterious for all these reasons, right? Maturity is mysterious. Growth and change seem to be mysterious. But the interesting thing is, we talked about this all last week. If you weren't here, I'll just direct you to go listen to last week's message so we don't cover it twice. But the interesting thing is, Paul says the mystery's been revealed. Paul knows his culture, and Paul, uh, it was very similar to right now. Tons of this whole secret sect. Everyone said there's a secret. And they had these little, like, societies, secret societies that they get around and talk about these big philosophical ideas, and they do these rituals, and they say, do this or hear this or learn this. And it was these elite little clubs that if you could get inside of, you'd be better off. Paul knew that. He's speaking directly into that cultural moment in the first century that's very similar to this cultural moment. And Paul's saying, hey, I got great news for you. You're looking for secrets. But, but the true mystery to maturity has already been revealed. It's been broadcast on the evening news. Did you miss it? It's not a secret at all. It's 
public source information. It's been put out there to the masses. And he says the secret, the mystery for all the ages, all the generations that's finally been revealed is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery is that God doesn't just give you his stuff in the gospel, God gives you God. Jesus doesn't give you just his grace, Jesus gives you Jesus in you. You're immersed in all these realities. We talked about it last week. Last week is the mystery revealed. You are immersed, submerged, pushed under the mercies of God and in every direction, 360 degrees up and down and right here and out there. You are drowning in a sense, surrounded by the powerful, pressing graces and mercies of God who has reconciled himself to you. That's the mystery. That's what you need to mature. That's what you need to grow. You need the person of God. Paul says uh, in this passage that in Christ, the treasures of all wisdom and understanding are hidden. That's the mystery. It's just another way to say what I just said, that in Jesus, Jesus in, in him are hidden all the treasures of true wisdom, all the treasures of true life, true understanding are all the resources you need to grow, to progress, to become a newer person, a different person, a more loving person, a more tranquil, at rest, peaceful person, a more sane person, a more in control person. Jesus is the one in whom all these treasures are hidden. And God has given himself. God has plainly revealed this to all of us. He's called us away from the treasure hunt. He said, hey, it's right in front of you. I brought it to you. I brought it to your doorstep. Why are you off hunting for treasure? Clicking on things you know, you know, or you will know, will not provide what they promise to provide. Well, how do you know if you're in on this secret that's been revealed? How do you know if you get the mystery? How do you know if you found the treasure? of Jesus. Well, to use the language of this passage, um, when you find treasure, you stop, right? I remember the first treasure I found, I was like seven walking to school, and I found what I later learned was a gold tennis bracelet. I didn't know there were bracelets for tennis, but it was about that long, (coughs) and I actually kept this thing for like the next you know, 10 years. I didn't trade it in for value until I was a college student here, and I took it up to like Alps where there was a jewelry shop up there, and I was needing some money, so I said, how much can I get for this thing? And he's like, well, $300. The first time I found treasure, I stopped my walk to school, and I stood there, and I looked down at this thing, and I picked it up, and I held it. Well, this is heavy. I think this is real. And I told everyone about it. When you find treasure, you stop. You don't pass it by. And that's, it's a very simple observation. We're not like, this isn't, you know, Organic chemistry we're talking about here. It's like when you see something cool, you stop. When you see something valuable, treasurable, you stop and you look at it. And it's a simple observation and a simple question, but one that needs to be asked. Do you keep passing by Jesus nonchalantly? If you do, he's not your treasure. He's not valuable to you. You don't see in him worth that you need. And so you walk right by. We walk right by in search of other treasure. Because we don't see him as something that we need, something that's valuable, something that's relevant, not a currency we're looking for, 
right? So he passed him by. Well, to deepen the metaphor, when you see, when you find treasure, you build your life on top of it. You know, in Saudi Arabia, about 100 years, someone found oil underneath those sands that are just kind of worthless. You can't farm on those sands. You can't build on those sands. They don't support anything. Well, someone found oil, a lot of oil, under the sand in Saudi Arabia. And guess what? People stopped moving on. The nomadic culture stopped, and it was a a permanent culture, a rooted culture. People started building towns and roads to connect those towns because they lived on top of oil. And they spent their days extracting that treasure that they had built their house on. They stuck around finally. For the first time, they stopped passing through and they started building rooted and established in that place. We build our lives on treasure. Paul says all the treasures of wisdom and understanding of life itself is in Jesus, who is God and who is man, and who has given himself to people who desperately need him. And the question is, have you passed him by? Have you stopped? And are you building your house on him? Or do you have a nomadic relationship with him? Where we come back when we need more supplies and then go on our way. Or is he the rock? Jesus himself says, build your house on the rock, not the sand. You know what happens with the sand, right? We know what happens with the sand. It keeps falling down. The stuff we build our lives on can't support the weight of something as precious as a human life. Jesus says, build your house on the rock. Stop passing me by, but linger. Drill down and know that there are inexhaustible riches in him and in his work and in his word where his person and his work is revealed to us. So he says, stop, you can't exhaust him. If you, if you're a Christian, you should be thinking, I think, I, I, yeah, I, want, I built my house on him, I think. I mean, I see him as valuable, as precious. I remember this time when, you know, most of my life I did not see him as valuable. College years for me were spent passing him by until one night he opened my eyes. And I built my house there. Why? Because I couldn't imagine living anywhere else. He was precious. He was beautiful. He was present. He was powerful. He was patient. He was loving. He was gracious. He was giving. But then that was 14 years ago, and so there's a lot of times when I'm like saying these words, and I'm like, I pass them by, I pass them by, I pass them by. It's like, in this passage, come home. Paul says, in the way that you received Christ Jesus, continue in him, walk in him, established. He's talking about foundations that have been rooted in him. So if that's you, if that describes you, you get to pray with Teresa of Avila, oh God, I don't love you. I don't even want to love you, but I want to want to love you. I want to want to love you. So Jesus, change my wants because they've gotten off track again. They've gotten attached to these secrets, these other treasures that glimmer in my eyes because I keep passing you by. So help me want to want you. Make me want to want you. And I'll say this, if you have never treasured Jesus, your life, whether because you dismiss him for philosophical or historical reasons or whatever else, and yours is a life of passing him by, then let me suggest something to you. If you, if you have any intrigue, I mean, you're here tonight, so maybe you're curious a little bit in what it would look like to know him more or know about him more. It's a guy named Robert Ballard. You might know the name. He's very famous. He's the guy who discovered the wreck of the Titanic. I didn't know this till I knew his story, but uh, 
They were looking for like 80 years, could not find the wreckage of the Titanic. Robert Ballard had a sneaking suspicion. Well, he knew, he knew, he believed the historical record. He'd read this newspaper accounts and all the other, you know, stuff that was available. He believed that the Titanic had in fact sinked. He believed the accounts it was somewhere in the North Atlantic. That's what he knew. That was kind of that seed of faith that was in him that he bought. But then he set out and he mastered the historical record. Every newspaper article written, every Morse code message intercepted by other boats, every set of coordinates that other boats in the area that heard the distress calls, he mapped all of those out. He knew ocean currents. He studied, you know, things a mile down on the ocean surface and the way the current interacts at that depth. He mastered it all. He went to the information. He went to the data. And it only increased his faith and put a finer and finer dot in a more and more high-definition certainty that the treasure is here, the treasure is here. And his increasing certainty that there was in fact treasure and that I think it's here led him to spend a lot of money and raise a lot of money to get a research vessel and to develop new submarine technology and sonar technology to drag behind a boat month after month to find the wreckage and one day they found it. He said, I always knew it was there. And if you are not a Christian, you don't know Jesus, you don't buy this stuff, can I suggest to you that if you're ever gonna find him, if your faith is ever gonna grow, it's not gonna happen by you sitting there. It's gonna happen by the same way your faith in anything grows. You study it, you read it, you investigate it, you search the historical record, and you see your confidence and your certainty growing more and more in a finer and finer point in higher definition certainty that this is where treasure is. And I need this, and I search for this. This is what Paul talks about when he talks about maturity and where it comes from. So the method of maturation, the method of maturation, if that's the mystery revealed, how do we actually begin to do this? What does it look like to search for this treasure? Rankin Wilborn's a guy I've quoted before, um, I think even last week, wrote a wonderful book on this stuff and he says, he kind of compares the Christian's progress, the Christian's maturation or being conformed more and more to be like, to think like, to love like, talk like, and act like God. He describes it this way. He's kind of saying like, is there anything for you to do? Or do you just kind of, we sit there and it happens to us. He says it's kind of like sailing. Is the skill of the sailor important? Certainly skill makes a difference. But no matter how knowledgeable or determined the sailor might be, he needs something else. Something he has no control over at all. The wind. If there's no wind, his boat won't move. And at the same time, the wind can be blowing fiercely and your boat still not move. Or at least not moving in the direction you'd prefer. You can be stuck. Your sail can be haplessly flapping in the wind. Or you can be tossed to and fro by the waves. You can even capsize. For you to move and for you to move in the right direction, certain skills need to be learned and put into practice. Moreover, you'll not be able to enjoy the experience of sailing until those skills have become so internalized in you that you're not even thinking about them anymore. You've practiced them so much that they've become second nature. Then you're not thinking about sailing, you're sailing. Look, the secrets that we talked about earlier they all are really promises to catch the wind. 
They're all really just promises to say, this is some energy that if you can tap into, it will propel your life forward. But we've already talked about the delusion is there's no energy there. There's no power. There's no wind. Paul is saying this passage and Rankin Wilborn is picking up on it. Jesus and his power in you is the wind. He is uncontrollable. He is not able to be mastered. He masters you. He's not able to be controlled. He controls you. He is the energy and the power. Paul says it at the end of chapter one. For this I toil, struggling with all of his, Jesus' energy that he powerfully works within me. Jesus himself refers to himself as the wind in John three with Nicodemus. You must be born again. Nicodemus thinks, okay, I got a controllable God. Tell me how, give me techniques. What's the secret to be born again and to have spiritual life flood into me? And Jesus says, uh, the wind blows wherever it wills. Nudging Nicodemus to say, Nicodemus, you can't do it. You can't control me, but I can say live. I can say breathe. I can say grow, and you can grow. How does this get practical in our lives? No amount of willpower will enable you to beat porn and your desire for it. And you know that. It's why it becomes an addictive cycle that we can't get out of. No amount of disciplined healthy self-talk will make you love the shape of your body in the mirror. And you know that because you've tried that. No amount of accountability and reminders on your phone will make you read your Bible early in the morning, every morning, every day. And you know that. You can't will your way into maturity. You can't squinch your eyes and clench your fists and grit your teeth and say, change, grow, mature. We're not the wind. Jesus is the wind. But Wilburn continues and he says, we can catch the wind. In order to catch the wind, we have to draw the sail. And in order to draw the sail, certain God-given, time-honored skills need to be learned and put into practice. Friends, this is where we begin to end talking about this passage is what does that dynamic look like of Jesus, the wind, his energy, Paul says, Christ in you is your hope. That's the best thing you have going for you. It is your certainty that you will look like Jesus more and more. It is your certainty that, you, that God will finish the good work he started in you. It is your certainty that you, yourself, with your broken life and your spinning wheels like me, will be a part of this new creation God is making. It is his energy, he is the wind, that blows your boat forward at the pace he has decided. But what is your interaction? What is your participation? What does it look like to throw up the sail and catch, harness the energy that is Jesus? The spirit of Jesus blowing and working in you. What does it look like to cast the sails? Well, first, it doesn't look like sitting in the boat. Listen to all of the action, effort-driven things Paul, while he's saying these very things, also says. Paul says, we, him we proclaim, Jesus we proclaim. Why? Because he's the wind, he's the batteries, he's the energy, he is life, he's resurrection. He is the power to tap into and he's not a secret. He sent his church into all the world to proclaim this life and to offer it freely. It's not a secret. Paul says we proclaimed, which implies Paul had to think hard about how do I proclaim it? These are Colossians. They're not from my home culture. I gotta think about how to put this in their words, their language. Okay, the way I'm gonna do this is talking about a mystery because they're obsessed with mysteries and clickbait. 
So I'm gonna talk about clickbait with them and I'm gonna say, Jesus is what you're trying to click to get. Paul lost sleep at night wondering, how am I gonna build trust with them, build credibility with them? That's all effort. Paul says, I, warned, I warn everyone and encourage them, implying that he noticed his friends were in danger of plausible sounding arguments. Paul had that angsty feeling of, oh, I don't think my friends are doing too well. What do I say? Do I, do I say something? Do I just pray for them? Paul decides at some point, I think I need to write a letter. He puts enormous energy and thought into writing a letter and picking his words and choosing what am I gonna say? What am I gonna not say? What, how am I gonna say it? Paul taught, him we proclaim, he says, implying that he thought greatly about his own understanding of the gospel. Paul did theology, Paul studied the scriptures, Paul connected dots, Paul prayed, like he said in chapter one of Colossians, Lord, grow me in spiritual wisdom and understanding that I might increase in the knowledge of you. Paul did all of that, that's all action. Why? He's trying to catch the wind that's already blowing. Do you see how that is a very personal relational interaction with God. That's not you trying to master your spiritual discipline so you can feel like a more disciplined Christian. That's you saying, blow Lord Jesus. Grow me. That is intently relational, not transactional. And so I wanna end with a few things Paul says to do. We looked at what Paul did. He struggled, he toiled, he taught, he warned, he proclaimed. He prayed. But what does Paul call us to do? He says you can receive wise warnings. Paul in this passage is warning us and he does it throughout the book. I don't have time to go through the eight other times in the next two chapters. He's gonna warn us. You go read that. But he continually warns us and every single time there is a common theme. Every time he warns us, there's a tell in there. Every single time he warns us, he says something like, you're not living according to Christ. You've left Christ. You're not rooted and established, or you're not remembering your rootedness and establishedness in Christ. He's saying these things you're after, they're a shadow, but Jesus is the substance. Every warning he gives is saying, you're on a treasure hunt again. Come back. You live on top of treasure. You live in Texas. You live in Saudi Arabia. You have a huge aquifer right underneath you. Plumb his depths. Don't go searching for treasure. So what can you do? What does it look like to hoist the sails? Start listening. Because God is warning you. Paul is warning you. I am warning you. We warn each other. Do you warn your friends when they leave Jesus and go on a treasure hunt? Do you notice? Do you say, guys, attention for you has become your treasure. It's not the secret. It's clickbait. You're gonna click on it. It's gonna destroy you. It's never gonna give you what you think it's gonna give you. You're 4.0 and maintaining that, it's clickbait. You're gonna click it and click it and click it and it's gonna leave you empty and empty and empty. It has no batteries, it has no power, it's not wind. Do you warn your friends? Do you listen to warnings that are being given to you as we speak? And he says the marks of people who are beginning to mature are there people who are knit together by love, which means you start to notice other people and their lives and their stories start to matter to you as much as your life and your story. Primarily with other Christians. That's always the, the chief accent in the scriptures is your brothers and your sisters. You see the people in this room, friends, listen. You see the people in this room as totally worthy of you walking across the room to get to know them. 
That's a mark of a mature person, a, mature, a maturing person who is coming alive, who's, who, whose boat is moving in the right direction. It's someone who is encouraged in their heart, Paul says, which means someone who is less and less living by emotion, living by the roller coaster of circumstances, and is a little bit steadier because Jesus is steady even though our circumstances aren't. And his thoughts about you and his love to you does not change if tomorrow is a rainy day or a sunny day, if you're depressed or anxious or steady and stable. People who are encouraged, people whose lives are not about themselves anymore are all marks of maturity. People who know where treasure is and have given up on the nomadic life and have built a house and put down roots. That's maturity. We'll keep talking about it in the weeks ahead. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I'm reminded by um, these stories and poems that all have the same theme of we sought you, we sought you, we sought you, and as we sought you, we found that you were first seeking us. And so my prayer tonight is that you, the wind, the energy, the power would blow. Teach us in very practical ways not to search for secret knowledge and try to get a leg up, but teach us to hoist our sails to catch your breath and to be blown in a direction that makes us more like you and more loving and aware and alert of our neighbors. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen.